Welcome to the Mind Care Podcast, where the mind, brain, and body meet. Here's your host, Glennis Bretherton. I'm really excited to introduce to you Michael G. Pipich, and he's the author of Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. Hi, Michael Pipich. Welcome to Mind Care Podcast. It's great to have you. Glennis, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Ah, oh, that's that's great. You know, I read your book and um, I was kind of captivated by it. I kind of thought the book was really aimed at, well, uni students, uh, you know, also patients and families, as well as psychotherapists. So you can be a practitioner as well and gain a lot of information from your book. Well, I, I absolutely agree with that. And that is one of the reasons why I wrote it not uh, just uh, specifically for uh, clinicians, but indeed for uh, patients and families so that they can become educated and have information about bipolar disorder, how it affects themselves and their lives and the various treatments that they can uh, um, look forward to and expect or at least have a cursory understanding of of many of those uh, treatments, enough that when they do approach professionals, for uh, assessment and treatment, that they're well prepared uh, both for uh, medications and, uh, and the medical necessity of, of bipolar stabilization, but also the psychotherapy and family therapy components, which I think are essential. And on the other side of that equation with the professionals, that it gives them an opportunity to have a, a real good sense of continuity necessary to provide uh, good treatment that everybody can get on board with in a very collaborative way. So I think that it provides information that is relatable, understandable at uh, various levels. And uh, again, uh, patients and families and their treatment members can all benefit from unifying around uh, the, the, the basics of uh, bipolar care. I'm really interested, and I know the listeners will be re- really interested in your background. You know, what's your academic background, Um, uh, maybe your teaching background, and the reason why you're so interested in bipolar? I've been a therapist uh, for over 30 years now, and uh, my background is in clinical psychology. I did my postgraduate work at uh, California State University, and uh, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. So uh, from an academic uh, and licensure standpoint, um, I try to bring together uh, uh, assessment and diagnosis and uh, the, the foundations of psychodynamic and psychoanalytic theory, as well as other approaches from psychotherapy early in my training, and from there uh, develop uh, assessment tools and approaches uh, that uh, I can help uh, with uh, various uh, clinical and relationship issues among adults and adolescents. And that really has been sort of my academic background and, and the basics of, of my career uh, from, from, from the 80s and 90s uh, up, until, up until now. And I, as you mentioned, I have uh, taught graduate courses in, in psychology, uh, mostly um, assessment, diagnosis, and psychotherapy courses for graduate students and psychopharmacology as well, which has really helped me to better appreciate um, the, uh, the the structure and necessity of medications, particularly where bipolar and other mental illnesses are concerned, but also side effects and how to speak with patients and families about their own concerns and fears and and real issues 
uh, around medications and what to expect and to assist with uh, physicians and other prescribers uh, with uh, our mutual patients where medications are appropriate. And certainly we're bipolar concerned. That's that's almost always the case. Mm. Moving moving forward uh, from my early years uh, into more uh, recent ventures, uh, I really developed a, a particular interest for bipolar disorder. And, uh, and what I found is to be uh, a deficit overall in how we conceptualize a bipolar disorder as a, as a disorder itself, how we go about assessing it in clinical practice, and the various treatment needs that I think are, are um, demanded upon us as professionals uh, where bipolar is concerned. In Australia, the Black Dog Institute suggests that there's 1.8% of the Australian population. Now, that's one in 50 people in Australia mm -hmm. that um, are considered to have bipolar disorder. What's it like in America? Well, that, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I've discovered that there are a lot of different um, uh, studies that suggest anywhere from 1% to 4% of, of the population um, uh, certainly in the U.S., and as I kind of observe some of the more uh, regional uh, epidemiological studies and so forth. But the suggestion, I think, overall is that the incidence of bipolar is pretty consistent worldwide. Uh, but I, I'm also familiar with some work that suggests that uh, the world population might be closer to 5%. Mm. And, mm. and I think... Um, that makes sense from the standpoint of how we need to be uh, more equipped um, as professionals, um, and I think as uh, with within our communities as well, to understand what bipolar mood swings are all about, how to better identify them, and um, and be willing to uh, apply those diagnoses. Uh, those diagnoses where where it um, at least suggested and and move forward in looking more deeply into the possibility of bipolar mood swings, uh, in spite of the fact, Glennis, that bipolar has some very powerful signs and symptoms, it also can be um, very mysterious in the sense that mood swings can come and go, and very often when somebody comes into treatment. They may arrive for different reasons. Maybe it's because of depression. Maybe it's because of relationship issues, maybe substance abuse and so forth. <clears throat> and so we as clinicians, and I'm certainly trained in this direction, um, take the presenting issues and the presenting problems and try to sort those out and begin to construct a, a therapy uh, accordingly. Mm. But uh, very often what we find is that there can be underlying uh, bipolar symptoms or dynamics that might have preceded or pushed some of these other problems uh, to the fore. And we, as, as clinicians, can easily miss underlying bipolar disorder. And because of that, I think that as you looked at the statistics, um, th that's probably why there is such a variance and a suggestion that, um, that, uh, that the incidence may be higher than we know. I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to Mind Care Podcast on iTunes. If you leave a star rating on iTunes, it will really help the podcast and more people will have access to the information that we can offer. Perhaps you might like to leave some feedback. Or send me an email at admin at htca.com.au. 
And now back to the interview. Michael has mentioned some of our listeners are students. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind explaining the different types of bipolar. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd be happy to do that. So uh, starting with uh, bipolar one and bipolar two, and then we can talk a little bit about cyclothymia. And those are the three basic forms of bipolar disorder. And then you have uh, different qualifiers with regard to what is the most recent episode or current episode and whether or not there's a rapid cycling type of qualifier and, and, and mm. some other things. But, but those, those are the basic three. So starting with bipolar one, bipolar one is uh, appropriately diagnosed if there is at least one episode of mania in, in that person's lifetime. And that's really it. So to, uh, it's important, obviously, to understand what that manic episode is all about diagnostically. But bipolar one is one um, manic episode in that person's life. Bipolar two is about hypomania and a period of uh, major depression. <clears throat> so hypomania, as the as the name suggests, hypo meaning under, it's under mania, and it has um, all of the same symptoms of of mania, but hypomania is distinguished by typically a shorter length of time. Uh, For example, a manic episode to be uh, a manic episode, as we would see in bipolar one, um, diagnostically has to last at least seven days consistently. Uh, Hypomania, on the other hand, has to be at least four days. So it can be between four and seven days. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, it sounds like both of those can be longer than seven days, and that's true, and that's when it gets a little bit trickier in terms of distinguishing between those two yeah. epi- kinds of episodes. And um, <clears throat> so moving um, sort of down the lo- uh, the algorithm um, of hypomania, we know that hypomania is typically, um, if, it's, if it's longer than four days, uh, or seven days, that is, four to seven days is the first sort of criterion, and then the second one, is um, uh, the uh, severity of of the consequences, what we call functional consequences, acts of impulsivity, uh, spending sprees, sexual indiscretions, uh, drug or alcohol binges, uh, these sorts of things, uh, certainly any kind of uh, financial or legal problems that are directly um, associated with that episode. Typically, we see in hypomania, fewer or uh, of those consequences, or we see those consequences in lesser severity. And then the other aspect of hypomania is that it has to be recognized as something distinct from that person's usual pattern. Mm. <clears throat> so I think the logic behind hypomania is, is basically this. If a person has occasional hypomanic episodes, but they've never had a period of depression or they've never had anything that consequentially uh, could have uh, created uh, uh, ruination in their lives, um, then they they are are not considered to have bipolar disorder. So I guess you might say diagnostically, you're allowed to have some hypomania. And we do find that there are many individuals that have um, very uh, creative and productive periods of time that are probably associated to those 
somewhat brief and less consequential types of episodes. Yeah. So the, the, the thing to understand about bipolar 2 is that it must also have a period of major depression in that person's lifetime as well. So in bipolar 1, you really don't need a period of depression, but obviously that happens quite a bit. But diagnostically, it's not necessary because you've had that one history of, uh, 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 of uh, a manic episode. Yeah. In bipolar 2, you have the hypomania and the depression. So if you do have at least one hypomanic episode in the, in the lifetime and one his, um, history of one episode of depression, that qualifies as bipolar 2. And if, if there is a psychotic features associated, um, that would qualify as bipolar 1 because that would be considered part of mania and not hypomania. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the, the basic distinguishing factors and I think it's very important for clinicians to understand that, obviously, to make <clears throat> the right assessment and diagnosis and treatment plan. Uh, medications uh, can, uh, for example, uh, be um, uh, adjusted in order to accommodate uh, that, uh, the differences uh, between those disorders and, and the features with, within those disorders. Uh, but I also think it's important for patients and, and families to understand those differences uh, going forward, partly because... So many patients and families hear so much uh, around them, or they go on the internet and they and they and they uh, uh, go looking for information. And there's so much available, obviously, that can be confusing. I think it's important for people to understand that when they have that diagnosis, that's where they are, and uh, and moving forward, uh, uh, you know, specific treatments can be applied. And psychothymia then is um, uh, a lesser form of even of um, bipolar compared to bipolar 2. You might even casually talk about it as bipolar 3 if you want to. Yeah. Um, and that is um, dysthymia, uh, which is not major depression, but sort of like minor depression, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, occasional cycling of those two disorders. So if somebody has, uh, <clears throat> let's say, periods of dysthymia along with um, uh, hypomania, and, and those kind of go back and forth. Um, uh, that's, that's an important uh, uh, diagnostic um, um, label to, to take a, a good look at. And in fact, we can often see that with uh, children or early signs of an emerging bipolar disorder. And very often it, it begins itself in a very rapid cycling or psychothymic uh, kind of presentation. Okay. Am I correct in saying that the onset of bipolar 1 is in late teens and for bipolar 2 is in the early 20s. Is that right? That is, that is correct. Okay. And that's what the research shows. Um, now, I think it's important to understand that bipolar 1 tends to be more uh, apparent, more obvious. The symptoms tend to be a little bit more dramatic. Okay. And then, then we might see in bipolar 2. <clears throat> that doesn't always apply, but generally speaking, I think that that's true. So while we look at the sort of average age of onset, I think it's important to keep it in the context of what we typically can identify. And very often people with bipolar 2 can go many, many years without uh, the recognition that they actually have a form of bipolar disorder. Whereas with bipolar 1, maybe that gets a little bit more attention because um, because the uh, the affect and the presentation of symptoms can be so much more dramatic. But but it is a genetic disorder. Uh, people um, 
are essentially born with bipolar disorder. And they ha- uh, the classic uh, bipolar disorder presentation <clears throat> has genetic underpinnings. And, and, uh, and so we would say that a person has a predisposition based on those genetics. And then there are certain catalysts that bring out the disorder. One of those um, pretty typical catalysts is adolescence. And mm. the, the uh, hormonal and uh, physiological changes as long with, along with life changes – and uh, the emergence of uh, adult responsibilities, perhaps moving away from home for the first time, uh, going to university, whatever the case may be, all of those things can very much bring out bipolar disorder. And I think it's, it's really important, among other things, that um, our, our universities and colleges be more aware of their incoming freshmen, <laughs> because I know very often um, that's when uh, people that have that underlying bipolar disorder uh, frequently uh, display those uh, those first time symptoms. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. So with um, with bipolar, sometimes uh, there can be a confusion with other mental illnesses. Uh, so, uh, for example, schizophrenia. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think about that when I say that? Well, yes, particularly the. Um, Patients with bipolar disorder that have uh, psychotic features, mm. uh, th- those would certainly um, uh, present some diagnostic dilemmas in terms of understanding whether or not it's schizophrenia or it's bipolar disorder. And then you could say on that spectrum, in between is something we call schizoaffective disorder mm. as well. We can talk a little bit about that if you like, but, but on that sort of continuum, that psychotic continuum, um, there are a couple of fundamental differences to help people to understand, uh, both clinicians and uh, patients and families as well. So with bipolar disorder, or let me, let me start with schizophrenia. Uh, schizophrenia is uh, considered a thought disorder. It's mm. a disorder of thinking. And along with that is commonly hallucinations. Um, and uh, those hallucinations are typically uh, auditory in nature. That's a person hearing voices. Very often they'll hear more than one voice kind of communicating with each other within their, within their own mind. And they hear those voices quite audibly. So it's not like an inner voice that somebody has telling you to do something. We often talk about, oh, my inner voice told me to do something. No, this is, these are distinct voice, uh, voices that people hear and that are identified as auditory hallucinations. And along with that are delusional uh, thoughts very often they're paranoid or persecutory um, and can have a, a lot of uh, wild sort of uh, attachments to them in terms of who that person is. And they, they fear that people are talking to them or the television is talking to them, giving them uh, secret messages and so forth. Yeah, yeah. But that thought disorder, if not treated, is pretty consistent. Once a person has schizophrenia, <clears throat> they're pretty much going to have those symptoms on a regular basis. Now, they might have good days and bad days, or maybe a day where they don't have so much uh, with regard to hallucinations, and maybe some days it, it can be quite overwhelming. But it's overall pretty consistent. What we see with bipolar disorder, and, and I'm going to say specifically bipolar 1 since we've been talking about that, where there is a psychotic mania or psychotic depression, uh, bipolar disorder in general is not a thought disorder but a disorder of mood, of affect. Yeah. 
And those psychotic features, either in psychotic uh, manic zones or in the psychotic depressive zones, are, are more transient. And they follow the, the mood changes. <clears throat> so we expect that while they may have very similar kinds of symptoms um, to, uh, that you would see with patients who have schizophrenia, we would expect those psycho uh, psych uh, psychotic features to uh, reduce or even resolve once they return back to a baseline mood zone. Hmm. And they're not in mania or they're not uh, deeply in depression. <clears throat> There's some resolution to that. Now, some of that delusional thinking may still be residual. They might hang on to that because they just went through these experiences. So it's not that they can turn it off entirely with a switch, if you will. But, they, but we can expect that resolution to happen. And so when those features come and go, that's more indicative of bipolar disorder. Mm. In your book, you talk about denial, the um, denial of the patient and also the family members or, or people associated with the patient. Would you like to discuss that a little bit more? I believe that denial is very much a part of bipolar disorder, and um, it's important to look at it as, as, a, as a part of, of bipolar disorder that needs to be assessed, uh, addressed, and treated. Um, very often we look at defenses of all kinds, particularly denial as non-compliance or some kind of resistance to therapy. But I see it more in the context of being more symptomatic. Hmm. So in my book, um, I talk about three phases of bipolar therapy, pre-stabilization, stabilization, and post-stabilization. And one of the features of pre-stabilization is denial, and, and that can, the extent of which can vary from patient to patient. But I think it's important to look at it within the context of that pre-stabilization phase of treatment and very much fundamental um, to the therapy process and to help that person move forward from that pre-stabilization phase into stabilization and, and beyond. And... Um, Denial uh, in bipolar is very similar um, to what we would see with people with um, substance abuse disorder. So if, um, if any of your listeners um, deal with addictions and uh, alcohol drug dependency, either in their own lives or professionally with others, I'm sure they're very familiar with what denial is all about. Mm. Um, and it's very similar in bipolar disorder. But again, it's not, it's not somebody being incorrigible or simply difficult to get along with it's part by it's it's part of bipolar and bipolar is difficult to get along with <laughs> you know and yeah. from certainly from a social standpoint and a, and a relationship standpoint mm. um so it needs to be uh in my in, in my uh, approach it needs to be uh addressed assessed and addressed and there's different ways to approach it because it certainly can manifest itself quite differently from person to person and um, but very often common sorts of underlying fears that the denial may be protecting is a fear loss of mania or hypomania. Uh, many patients um, come to really enjoy some of the experiences of those manic or hypomanic um, uh, episodes. They Actually, feel they can become. Sorry, there's, sorry, a, there's a, um, a sentence that uh, in your book, which is mania can be a defense mechanism against depression. And, um, you know, since you're kind of talking about that now, I found that really interesting. Um, 
And I guess you're kind of leading to that. Uh, correct. Yes, I am. Because, mm. um, again, uh, people that have had bipolar disorder will frequently cite some very positive beneficial aspects. At least that's their perception of it. Um, and that's fine. Uh, because I think that there is some truth to that in terms of how people just feel so much more energetic, more alive, uh, to uh, very often to grandiose levels, of course, and, and that's where a lot of the trouble can begin. But they certainly experience it in very positive, beneficial ways where they can become uh, uh, very uh, productive, they feel very creative. Now, the uh, people around those individuals may disagree that they're being very productive. They may be doing a lot of stuff, but not necessarily getting anything done um, by by the measures we usually use mm. uh, to to assess these things. But but certainly that person feels alive. They go from a sense of dullness to uh, bright color, and everything uh, that their senses just pop, and and they and they re they can really enjoy those experiences and at least feel. Um, that they're very special, very important, and they have all of these things to accomplish. And where that becomes a, a defense against depression is when that person has had that experience at least one time in his or her life. Um, it, it really is indeed an offset to the very terrible, deep, dark sense of hopelessness and helplessness and even uh, thoughts of death and suicide that, that – uh, is uh, so common in bipolar depression. Yeah. So, um, so uh, protecting those beneficial aspects of mania for what they are is one thing, but it's also indeed a, a defense against ever having to feel that sense of depression. Because again, remember, people with bipolar disorder have had this disorder their whole life, and we just may be seeing or witnessing or identifying certain symptoms at certain times in their life when it's emerged either because of adolescence or uh, women with postpartum um, bipolar disorder um, can experience it after their first child or second child. Um, so again, the, the, the symptoms that we can see objectively and assessed from sort of outside that person's experience is one thing. But I believe that people with bipolar have really seen themselves in the world around them through that prism, through that lens of mood extremes. Yeah. So if you take away sort of the good extreme, um, it, it certainly would leave them feeling that all they have left is the, is the very bad extreme of depression. So yeah, I, I do believe that, uh, that that is a defense, and, and, and that's a big reason why uh, denial is, is, can be so, um, um, so uh, prevalent uh, in, in, in a person's life. Mm. I'll, I'll um, mention to you uh, about... Uh, um, it could have been male or female, but I say a, a, a lady that I met some years ago and uh, she was the head of um, a really large organization, um, a CEO, and very, very productive. She fell into um, a depression and she was working with a psychologist and, you know, with clinical hypnotherapy in Australia it's always um, advised that we we work alongside a psychologist and you know there's this collaboration and uh between the clinical hypnotherapist and um the psychologist and so with this lady you know I met her when she uh, you know sort of fell into this depression and during that time she um you know quit her job and uh you know really was feeling terrible 
as she sort of progressed, she went into this manic stage and uh, she thought that she was a dancer and that she was very creative and she trotted overseas and uh, went into competitions and did really, really well. It was really fascinating, you know, from um, a clinician's perspective to witness, um, the, you know, witness this, because I don't work with bipolar people often, <laughs> and to actually, you know, sort of witness what was happening. And for this this lady to find out that she had this creative side of her that was beyond her music, you know, playing the piano, she was great at dance, to be able to go in and, and do this. And so the mania that she was feeling really worked for her in a very, very positive way because she was receiving all these awards and everything, you know, as mm -hmm. a dancer. So is that um, um, that's something that hop happens off self-discovery Some... in, the, in the mania? Well, yes, absolutely. That that is quite possible, and and I, I don't think ter terribly uncommon. Um, some of the issues that kind of get in the way of that is that some people in that uh, manic or hypomatic state, and, and more frequently, we, again, we'll see that with bipolar one media, is that uh, th people feel so good and so creative um, that they attempt to exceed what their own personal skill set would <laughs> allow yeah. them to achieve, right? Yeah. So if, if, if she had a skill as a dancer, um, then certainly, um, and, and I don't know if that was mania or hypomania, if, if, she, was, if she was not a dancer and she suddenly believed she was and she was entering competitions, uh, we would expect um, without that skill set that she would be a failure. Um, and that would probably lean more towards um, the, the manic side of it. Mm -hmm. Hypomania might suggest uh, that uh, somebody that does have that uh, particular skill and has spent time practicing, but uh, perhaps never had quite the energy or the desire or the, or the self-image necessary to say, you know what, I'm really good and I want to enter comp international competitions and so forth. Provided that that individual, again, has the training and the skill, um, yeah, that, that certainly can be the fuel. Um, but then again, you have that other side. The flip side is the depression side. And when w with somebody with that history, uh, we can expect that at some point, it's quite predictable that that individual will hit a wall. Yeah. And, yeah. and that wall can be very, very tragic, mm. um, um, particularly on the depression side. And we, we do see that with uh, celebrities, don't we? Um, yeah. Very often, uh, you have people that are quite creative, quite talented. Um, I don't believe that bipolar disorder makes people talented or makes them creative. But I do think that it can provide a certain thrust of energy and desire and motivation that uh, that certainly, you know, in, um, in more calmer times just doesn't exist for them. And mm -hmm. so they come perhaps in some way, shape or form reliant on that surge of energy. One of the things that I do in therapy, I talked uh, before about pre-stabilization and, and as a person goes through stabilization through medications, uh, we begin to look at all of the symptoms of bipolar from the pre-stabilization, kind of break it down away from saying you have bipolar disorder. Well, what does that really mean? Because an individual like the lady that you had mentioned might say, well, good for me. I have bipolar. It works for me. But what we try to do is break those symptoms down 
and separate sort of the good from the bad, if you will. Yeah. Almost create some kind of a ledger between uh, sort of the pros and cons and, and help people to understand that there are some symptoms available to that. So um, I, could, I could certainly – I wouldn't argue with her, for example, if she said that I get so much energy and I feel so alive and I'm creative and look, look at all my accomplishments. And, and some of those accomplishments are for real. They're not just in her own head. No, okay. there were photos yeah. with awards and yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. you know, it's hard to argue with that kind of evidence, right? Yeah. So what but what I would help her to understand is there's also a depression side to that. Yes. There's also uh, pieces of of this this thing we call bipolar that is very undesirable. So let's talk about how we can treat those symptoms and help you going forward to be successful, to be creative. Um, to enjoy your life and the gifts that that you have, but in a way that is consistent, that doesn't go in episodes, and prevents uh, a very, uh, very desperate, dark, and potentially suicidal form of depression. As you go through stabilization, um, you find out that uh, uh, you can lace all of these symptoms together and begin to, to see that it is one disorder. And then into post-stabilization, it's more about how do you live your life with bipolar as a part of it, but not front and center mm. in everything that you do. And that's where we can have really good conversations, among other things, about what it is to be a creative person, what it is to be productive, what it is to be um, unique in your own character. It's not about being a medicated zombie. Yeah, it's about that being was that your was, own um, person. Sorry, that was one of the the thoughts that um, you know she had, and and I guess it's in the stabilization part of the the free phases is that um, you know just accepting that this is a lifelong illness. You know there will be times where she will be you know manic, although um, meds and psychotherapy would would kind of um, you know stabilize that, wouldn't it? Yes, and and in fact that is one of the challenges in that post stabilization phase. Even when somebody has accepted that they have bipolar, accepted that um, that the medication is necessary for them to maintain good mental health through their lifetime, inevitably, at one point or another, uh, that individual is going to try to test, or at least consider, testing life without medication, and very often, many of them do. And I, I tell them in the early phase of post-stabilization, I tell all my patients this and, and their families as well so that they can expect it. Look, you're going to want to um, uh, at least think about trying your life without medication. It's going to happen. And even if they've become uh, the, the, the biggest convert to bipolar treatment there was, you know, a poster child, if you will, they'll still consider that at some point. Yeah. And I would imagine for, uh, for our example today of this, of this woman – um, she may even get to the point where she would say, okay, um, you know, I have a, I have a competition coming up. Maybe if I just go off my meds for a few days or for a week and I'll just jump back on ship, you know, afterwards. Yeah. Well, those can have very dangerous consequences. One of the things that I, that I see happen though, is that sometimes people go off their medications and they're fine for a while. Um, and, and they can, some people, not all can go. Uh, a, a fairly long period of time and then the, they become more convinced that they don't need it, that they're somehow cured. And and that's just not the case. Some pre-stabilization crisis is right around the corner at one point or another. 
But I do think that when people are advised, that when they feel that way or they're considering it, um, to talk to somebody, to talk to their therapist or their loved one, um, because there's typically something else that's going on in their life that's causing them perhaps some stress or some sort of conflict um, that that goes along with, with that desire at that time. And it may be a great opportunity for them to uncover some of those issues and, and, and go more deeply in, into their therapy with it. Mm. Do you find that sometimes the family members are, um, well, first of all, shocked to hear that uh, their loved one will have bipolar? And also, uh, secondly, not really keen on medication or even, uh, you know, the client, I guess, as well, you know. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh, talking about family members, uh, um, yes, sometimes uh, they can be very shocked. Uh, once in a while, they can be relieved um, because there. I think that everybody needs to know that there is there's a label. You know, labels get a bad rap, and I understand that because there is stigma. And, and that's a whole issue unto itself in terms of how patients and families deal with uh, social bias and, and attitudes and prejudice around mental illness in general and bipolar specifically. But a lot of people are, are, are relieved to know that what their loved one was experiencing has a name to it, mm. has a label to it, um, is researched, that there's something that can be done about it and that they're not alone. And very often that last piece can be the most important to understand in those very very early stages of, of diagnosis and therapy. So they're not always uh, um, resistant to it, but very often they are. And, um, and that can take uh, a number of forms. I'm particularly um, careful in, in talking to parents of children with bipolar, either um, minor children or even um, young adult children where parents are still very much involved in that person's life Um, because um, parents don't want to think, and I'm a parent and I totally understand this. Parents don't want to think that their child has something that they can't outgrow or won't go away uh, at some point in their life. Bipolar disorder is a a lifelong disorder. Hmm. So it does take some real effort and process to, for everybody to get on, on board with the idea of the diagno- of just the diagnosis itself and what that means uh, broadly for the long term. And then you brought up the point about medications. And medications can be very scary for people, and, and that's understandable too. Due in part that um, medications are a big deal. Um, uh, they, they do have side effects, and, and uh, there is an element of trial and error when it comes to psychiatry and pharmacology, we know that that's just kind of part of the deal as, as it stands today. But um, the, the other aspect is that people hear horror stories of all kinds, yeah. um, either, e- either from their personal lives or from what they've read or what they've heard or what other people have talked about that can create a strong uh, visceral response to the whole concept of a, of a mental illness that requires medication. Um, a lot of people um, have little problem taking uh, medications if they have an infection, like an anti- uh, antibiotic, or a lot of people, of course, uh, enjoy coming home 
after a hard day of work and opening <laughs> yes. up a bottle of wine or or smoking some weed or whatever they whatever they do to relax. So sometimes you have uh, you know kind of the good drugs and sometimes you have the scary ones. Uh, but I I do again expect that as as a response. And I think it's important for professionals first to understand, those who are listening to your program who work with people with bipolar, again, to expect that and, and develop, if you haven't already, a means by which you can converse with people and listen to their concerns and, and their fears and um, certainly validate where they're coming from, but also assess your own uh, positions about medications and how you feel about it. Mm. Uh, you might yourself, as a professional, understand academically and clinically the importance of these medications, but you might have your own reactions to it. You know, people have their own personal horror stories of something that they might have gone through, or, or maybe a loved one, or a parent, or somebody where treatments uh, for this or any other kind of medical problem may have not gone well. So much in the way that therapy is about transference uh, from patient to uh, therapist in terms of how those feelings are transferred onto the therapist, therapists and doctors and treatment professionals, particularly in a, in a mental health um, scenario. I think we also have to assess our own feelings about these things and other things too, in terms of how we address the issues in a therapeutic way that helps people to reduce fear, uh, reduce the sense of stigma that kind of comes with uh, dealing with uh, a mental illness in, in your life, in your personal life, and in your family life, and move forward to um, examining what these medications can be and what it's all about, and, uh, and, and, and have uh, open conversations about these things going forward. Mm. The, the patient is, um, you know, once they sort of accept the fact that they might have bipolar or he or she might have bipolar and, you know, medication is, it will help and psychotherapy, then they're, they're creating a new identity, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Again, if you will, remember that uh, bipolar has been with that person his or her entire life, mm. whether, it's, whether they've been symptomatic or, or not, uh, that is part of their developmental scheme and how they regulate emotions and how they see themselves in the world around them. Um, and so moving from that stabilization piece into post-stabilization is really very often about grieving the loss of that previous identity. And while certain family members might be excited that their loved one is getting well and, and more stable, and, and we as uh, clinicians can all congratulate ourselves from being such astute <laughs> therapists and physicians, and we look at how we did a great job. That individual is perhaps at one level or another grieving that loss of that previous identity yeah. and, and is afraid about what the future may hold and how he or she will see uh, their own identity, but also um, about uh, people in the future that they might meet or fall in love with or whatever. How is it for that person who might be indeed stable on medication, but fall in love with somebody and eventually say, well, I have bipolar disorder, but I'm really stable. Um, that is a very awkward and, at, at the minimum, type of experience for many people going forward. Mm. Being genetic as well, there, there's the passing on, you know, through, through the family, bipolar to children. Yes, it is. Mm. On the other hand, 
people that have had that experience in their own life, they become very aware, sometimes indeed maybe a little too aware for, uh, you know, maybe pick apart a little bit too many things uh, and maybe become overly sensitive to it, but but educated nonetheless and understanding of what their child's experience may be particularly if that, if that child is beginning to display uh, their own symptoms of, of bipolar disorder. And, uh, you know, in this and everything, Glennis, early detection and early treatment is the key, isn't it? Mm. And so if, if one has bipolar disorder and, and, uh, and they go forward in life and, and they, they want to make children with their loved one, and, but it's a, it's a scary thing, will my kid have bipolar or whatever? Well, you'll certainly be on, on the lookout for Anything that appears to be out of out of what what you would typically expect for a child and, mm. and their development, but you would also be in the best position to give that child the gift that maybe wasn't as as um, as available to you uh, uh, yourself at, at that age and, and and save that child from from struggling. So there is a different perspective, I think, to to look at that. Yes, yeah, yeah, a really positive one. What's the future of, of someone with bipolar? And, you know, they have medication and they're um, seeking psychotherapy. They're working with a psychologist. What's the future? Uh, I think uh, not only their own self-image and how they develop that going forward, but also how loved ones and family members can be an, a supportive uh, part of that. Uh, that experience moving forward in their lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, developing conversations about who they really are and how they really feel. Um, very often people that are dealing with bipolar uh, are, are afraid that their their loved ones may, similar to what we just talked about in, in the other scenario, that their loved ones will see them as as always having some sort of bipolar issue. You know, if, if they're particularly upset uh, one day, you know, they don't want to be uh, looked at as maybe off their medication or something. You know, they may be really responding to something in a more typical um, uh, emotional um, uh, pattern in their life. Mm. And so, so the future, I think, ultimately is about discovering oneself uh, with the therapy, of course, but also with the loving support of others around that individual to understand what a, what a range of emotions is like. Uh, accepting that person in their own individual um, gifts and their unique character. Uh, I think it's important for families to know that that bipolar person that they love may not, through treatment, become exactly the person that they want them to be, but that's okay too. It's ultimately about accepting oneself and life around you uh, with that new and fresh and healthy kind of identity and sharing in relationships going forward. And for those who <clears throat> are maybe so inclined, you know, everybody's entitled to their privacy. But I think that saving lives is ultimately what it's all about. Yes. And yeah. I'm very encouraged when I see uh, people who, on their own accord, uh, as they move through that post-stabilization phase in particular, reach out to others, maybe volunteer their time, or just be aware of people around them or in their neighborhoods or in their in the workplace or at school or whatever, that uh, when they recognize somebody who may be suffering similar to what they've gone through and they're aware of that, and while other people may walk by that individual, you know, busy in their own minds with their own concerns, p- 
people that have gone through successful bipolar treatment very often reach out to that person and say, is there something I can help you with? Is there, because they can recognize that in their midst. Mm. And, and that is a very positive and I think beautiful way to sort of pay forward um, and uh, the experiences, the positive experiences and the, that have come from real struggle in that person's life, but also try to ease the pain and suffering and help people to get into treatment uh, sooner than, uh, than maybe they themselves uh, had experienced. Mm. So offering some compassion. That's really lovely. I really have to say that I think your book, Owning Bipolar, it's such a great book. It's, um, it's informative and well-written and easy to read, which is, which is really great as well. If you're working with someone with bipolar, hand it out, offer it out or suggest to buy it. And um, so on that note, we, we might uh, wind up. It's been lovely speaking with you. Um, thanks so much uh, for your time. It's been great. Glennis, thank you. Yes, thank you very much as well uh, to invite me. And um, thank you so much for supporting the cause of helping people in your country and people around the world who will hear this podcast, I certainly hope, and uh, be very supportive in, in helping people, particularly with bipolar, but all you do for mental health. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's something uh, that, uh, that I think uh, you should be proud of as well. So oh, thank, thank you. you for the invitation. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Bye for now. If you'd like more information, then go to the Mind Care podcast website. We'll also tell you about our next guest.